Well, let's, let's read Isaiah 6. Why are we doing Isaiah 6? Because we're in, we finished one series. We're in a few uh, uh, one-off kind of um, preachers before we dive into our next series, which is going to be on the book of Acts. Um, so if you are the kind of person who likes to know what's happening and what the next series is dropping on Netflix, the next series dropping here is, is Acts, and it's going to be a long one. Uh, I don't know if what church you've been a part of, uh, but if you're new to Parkhurst, we don't do Acts in like four weeks, okay? That would be like a travesty. If you're part of a church that does Acts in four weeks, you should leave uh, because they're like leaving out everything. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to take us, and we're going to intersperse the book of Acts with other series and breaks and stuff like that, but that's the next long, big book that we're going to do, and I'm going to explain in the next couple of weeks why we're doing Acts. It's really important for us to understand why on earth we feel led to do a particular book, and uh, I'll explain a bit more some of the detail around, around that, but... This morning, we are looking at Isaiah chapter 6. Let's read it. I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into it uh, together. I think it'll be on the screen. Yes, it is. Isaiah 6, 1 to 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And, they call, and one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Fathers, we come, uh, as we come to your word again this morning, we... We pause as we, as we do week in and week out to still our hearts and to remind ourselves that you're the living God who speaks living words uh, into our lives, into our hearts, day by day, moment by moment. But you also, you also do it in particular ways when we gather together as a body, as we come together under your word with a longing to hear your voice and to meet with you. You do speak, and you, you challenge us, you change us, you convict us, you strengthen us, you shape us all through your word in the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we collectively look to you this morning. Father, would you send the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and to be our revealer again this morning? Would you open up our eyes to see? Would you open up our ears to hear? Would you, would you soften our hearts to receive from you this morning? 
we're aware that you were waiting for us this morning in this place, longing for your people to gather so that you could move among us, that you could speak, that you could draw us near to you, that you could impart grace and mercy and strength to us and speak life-giving words. And so we look to you now. Father, would you do that for our good and for the glory of your name? We ask together in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a note taker, I have three points. I, think, I seem to be stuck on three points lately. If, you're, if you've been paying attention, I need to shake that. I need to get out of that groove. I'm not a Baptist. The first point is this, that Isaiah encounters a holy God. I'm going to give some of, some of the context to this because I know it's unusual for us to just dive into um, a passage in a book. Isaiah is a long book. I would encourage you to read the whole thing. Isaiah 6 is a longer passage. I would encourage you to read that. We're only just looking at a little bit of it, and so I need to give you some of the context. But here's the picture that we find Isaiah, the prophet of the Lord, uh, in the temple, uh, and he sees a vision. It says that uh, it's in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. King Uzziah was, um, well, he started off as a good king, and then he became a terrible king, which if you pay any attention and you read the Old Testament, you would know that that's fairly normal as a pattern for the, the kings of Israel and Judah. Start out great, lose their way. Uh, and the same thing had happened with King Uzziah. King Uzziah dies, and Isaiah finds himself maybe bewildered, maybe wandering, maybe needing another fresh uh, encounter maybe feeling leaderless, I don't know, this is the true prophet of the Lord, so he wasn't overly dependent on King Uzziah, but he finds himself in a place where one king has died, and he gets to see a vision of who the true, the true king is, and just for a moment, we need to start, everything else that we're going to look at this morning flows out of us, starting at the beginning of this passage and getting a very clear picture of what Isaiah sees here, it says he sees the Lord on his throne. Now, I heard one guy once preach this, um, Lord willing, I'll never hear any more of his sermons, but his ad, he was advocating that the guy was on psychedelics, uh, and that's why he had a vision kind of thing, and that Isaiah was basically a hippie who took drugs, and he saw, you know, like maybe when you were partying too hard in your varsity days, and you also saw things on thrones and whatever else, like that's not what is happening here. Isaiah has a vision, we're not exactly sure how it happens, but he sees he sees the Lord. He sees, he sees the Lord, and the Lord is sitting on his throne. It says he's high and lifted up. And what does it say? I mean, every word is weighted here um, and is important. It says he sees the throne so that the train of his robe fills the temple. The train, the, the, the train of his robe fills the temple. I think in, in, in the CSB it says the, the hem of his robe fills the temple. So you've got a temple and the, basically the king's robes, the, the end of it is filling the whole temple. Now, the, 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 the picture of the robe is the, the thing that designates the king as different, as majestic, as royal, as opposed to the regular plebs. Uh, if you've ever seen, I mean, you don't get to see them often, like a, a coronation of one of the royals in the UK. We don't really have, we don't have royals. I mean, no, we have a royal, Zulu royal family and other tribes have got royals, it rolls kind of differently, 
But when you see like uh, the, the, what was her name? The Queen Elizabeth. I feel bad that I don't remember her whole name, but, uh, you know, she passed away recently. Um, and they're going to be um, installing Charles as the king, I think, soon. I don't know if they're going to put their robe on him. I don't know if they only do it for the ladies, if they do it for the kings. But I saw one picture, and the robe was like, it wasn't like a wedding, um, what do you call those things? A train, thank you. An English bundle has run out, and it's what, like 9 o'clock? It's not 10 o'clock. Um, it's not like a wedding train, like but the royals, they have uh, a train of the robe that like people run, the minions run along behind carrying um, the thing. It goes all the way through the chapel or whatever else to rub in the point that they are royal and you're not. They have a train, this long robe, and, and you don't. They are royal, you aren't. And I'm not trying to say that they're trying to rub your nose in it, but they're trying to draw a distinction. This is the king, you lot or not. And I think it's the same picture here. Like, no one else has a train of his robe that fills the temple. Isaiah is watching this. He's looking at this. And the, the train of his the, the robe is a sign of the majesty and the power and the authority of the king. And so it, it, fills, the whole, it fills the whole temple. Isaiah is bewildered with this. Surrounding the king are seraphim. These are angels. They have two wings with which they're flying. Two wings that are covering their eyes and two wings that are covering their feet. And they are calling out to one another. The CSB does a bit, in my mind, a bit of a clumsy translation of this. It just says one calls to another. But I think what you see is, it's almost like a war cry. You know, what you, you, when you're at school, like, we've got the spirit. Yes, we do. We've got the spirit. How about you in the next house? It's kind of like that. that. One set of angels calling to the other set of angels backwards and forwards. And what are they calling out? Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Your turn. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. This is the sound that is filling the temple as Isaiah stands there. He's caught up in the most majestic worship services, the angels. And we understand from other parts of Scripture that this is the refrain that continues 24-7 around the throne in heaven. So this is important to note. You see this in Revelation. This is, the, this is what the angels call out 24-7 around the throne in heaven. While we're here, now we've stopped singing. You know what continues? The worship of the king around the throne. 24-7. Endless, endless repetition of holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as the seraphim are, are shouting this backwards and forwards, the whole temple is shaking. Isaiah is standing there. We have good reason to believe he's on his own. He's, he's, there's no one else with him. The whole temple is shaking. It says the foundations are shaking. And you see the first smoke machine in the Bible. It says the whole place is filled with smoke. Whole place is full. I don't believe in smoke machines, but I mean, there's a good point to be made for them uh, here. Uh, the, the, the whole place is filled with smoke. Just put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. This is the vision that he sees of a, of, of a king on his throne whose, whose robe fills the temple. He's surrounded by angels who are just shouting worship over this king. So loud that the building is shaking and the whole place is filled with smoke. Why is it important that we start there? Because if, whenever I read this, 
uh, I'm amazed again at how different this is from a regular worship service. I've been a, a Christian for a while now. I've lost track of how many um, uh, church services and worship services and worship gatherings I've been to. Um, I have, and I'm not going to regale all of those things, had multiple encounters where in the kindness of God, there's been a, a special sense of His presence there where no one wants to leave. You have just a particular sense that God is amongst you. Um, not like the whole place isn't shaking and the smoke machine's overdoing it and you see angels and stuff like that, but just a very real sense that God is amongst you as a people and you have no desire to be anywhere else. And as I read this, I think something was provoked in me, myself, and to provoke you as a church, to provoke you as a Christian, say, where is, where is the longing in those who follow Christ, who call this King Lord, to encounter the same, um, the same things, to encounter the same level of worship where, not that we see the same visions, but we're so caught up in the presence of God, the presence of our King with us, that, and we'll see Isaiah's reaction uh, in a minute, and we'll go, we'll go through that and what it means, but that we are, we are, um, woken up to wonder. We're woken up to wonder. There have been so many worship services and times of singing where my mind, like yours, is a million miles away. I'm wondering, did I lock my car? No, yeah, I think I locked my car. No, maybe I didn't lock my car. Yeah, okay, where was I again? Yes, Jesus, I'll go to the ends of the earth for you. My tummy, my tummy's not feeling that good. Maybe it was the curry Claire made last night. It's like coming back to haunt me here kind of thing. This could go sideways. You know, oh, yes, sorry, Jesus, it's you again, kind of thing. Like, oh, I wonder who's fetching the kids. Oh, back to you, Jesus, again. And your mind is just going all over the place. I don't know if that only happens to me. Maybe I have particular and special issues. But I know people well enough that sometimes worship is like, oh, that person next to me. Ooh, gosh, I must remember next week, this is not the place to stand. Like, I, this person cannot carry a tune. Like, it may be a joyful noise to the Lord, but that's all it is, is a joyful noise. Like, note to self, not standing here next week. And you know, and your mind is done and you're ruined for the rest of worship. And you're like, I hope this doesn't go on too long, you know, <laughs> because the more we go in, the more they're singing. And, and, and sometimes our worship gatherings can be so, um, I, don't, I don't mean this to sound unkind, so devoid of reverence and awe and longing to see what Isaiah saw. That we are wrecked for everything else. And I mean this genuinely, that we are wrecked for everything else. That all of the, imagine that you came to a service, and this is the longing of our hearts, that you approach a Sunday like this. It's a Lord, we've got plans for the rest of the day. We've got plans to meet people for coffee. I need to chat to this person off at church. But God arrived in such a particular way that all your plans went out the window, that you couldn't care who you were having over for lunch, where you planned to go for a walk in the afternoon, that all of that went out the window because your greatest longing was just to stay in your seat and be in the presence of God hour upon hour upon hour. Some of you are thinking, that sounds awful. And some of you are thinking, would you do that, Lord? And I want to provoke you to that and say, hey, I, I think God does answer the prayers of his people. He answers the prayers of the expectancy of his people. I'm not saying that we're going for five-hour church services. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that God does respond to the longing of his people to come and meet them. I will say this, that the greatest need that you have the greatest need that you have is to be awestruck with wonder 
at the God who sits on his throne. Not to fit worship in on the side of your life, not to give him a little bit, not to sing five songs a week and think, I'm done. The greatest need that you have is to be wrecked for anything else as the Lord who's on his throne confronts you and opens up your eyes to see who we're truly singing about. What are the angels declaring? What are the angels declaring? This is really important. What are they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. They're not singing loving, loving, loving is the Lord. They're not singing gracious, gracious, gracious. The, the character, the characteristic of God that they're trying to highlight and that they sing and that they declare, they declare over the throne, they declare before the Lamb of God 24-7 is what? Holy, holy, holy. Different, different, different. Set apart, set apart, set apart. Pure, pure, pure is the Lord of armies. We love to sing songs about how much the Lord loves us. And I mean, I know that you, some of you have been around for a while. You know I have a go on a tirade every now and then about the Jesus is my boyfriend kind of songs. You know, if you can sing the songs over and over again and you could sing them to your boyfriend, uh, they are not good songs. If they're not mentioning the name of Jesus, characteristics of God kind of thing, they need, to be, they need to be different. And when you sing about holiness, now you're not singing that Jesus is my boyfriend songs anymore. Now you've moved into a different place. And the, the particular characteristic that they're declaring there is the fact that God is unlike us. The fact that God is not like us. And the angels treasure the holiness of God. The angels treasure the holiness of God. They're not, they're not scared of it. They are delighting. It is the theme of the 24-7 worship in heaven is the holiness of God, the otherness of God. Guys, if God is anything like us, it's unhelpful. You don't need a God who's like you. You need a God who is other. We need a God who's other, who's different, who is unapproachable in his holiness, except for the work of Jesus enabling and making a way for us. You want a God who is awe-inspiring and completely different. And the angels have no qualms in delighting in the holiness of God. Psalm 86, from 8, verse 8 to verse 10 says this, Lord, there is no one like you among the gods. And there, is, and there are no works like yours. All, all the nations you have made will come and bow down before you, Lord, and will honor your name, for you are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. There is no one like the Lord. There's no one like God. And the angels declare that and delight in that. And I think that's part of what causes Isaiah to be caught up in this. That just wrecks him. It's like he sees the otherness. He sees the, the difference of God. It's not like, oh, God's like me. I can relate to him. You want a God who's unrelatable, who's not like you in any way, because that's a God worthy of worship. Remember a few years ago, Dan was, um, Dan features a couple times in the sermon this morning. I'm glad he's not here. Um, don't tell him about these things. He's the awkward teenage age where they don't want to end up in the sermon. Um, he was studying the term they were doing at school was on space. And uh, Dan is a very curious, very bright kid. He loves to just learn about the whole world and deep dive on everything. 
um, and they were learning about space. And so we came home, and he had a question. They had to go, come home and find out how many times does the sun, no, no, how many times does the earth fit into the sun? How many times bigger is the sun than the earth? And he came and asked me as if I knew the answer. He was young enough to uh, still be in that stage where he thought I knew uh, answers like that off the top of my head, and those days are long gone. Um, so I was like, but I don't know. It's, it's bigger. Uh, I don't know. Let's just search it kind of thing quickly. Do you know what the answer is? Because I didn't. The, the, the earth fits into the sun 1.3 million times. So 1.3 million earths. I'm saying this slowly for those who did standard grade like me. Uh, 1.3 million earths fit into one sun. 1.3 million earths. The earth is a big place. 1.3 million of them fit into the sun. And you know what? The sun isn't the biggest star. It's actually fairly unimpressive when you do one of those universe zooming out kind of things. The sun, you sort of leave it behind fairly quickly as you keep going out into deep, dark space. And I explained this to Dan. And I remember his eyes being like on stalks, just being like, you know, like armed with the answer. Off he went back to school. But uh, I was praying with him that night. And it was such a privilege to pray with him and say, hey, but before we pray, I just want to remind you that this is the God that we're speaking to. This is God who spoke into being the universe that we live in. And he, he made, made the earth, and as impressive as it is, 1.3 million of these fit into the sun alone. And sometimes we so casually wander into a worship service to declare the glory and the greatness of God and to sing and to pray and to approach the Lord who spoke out of nothing, everything, and made the universe that is as big as it is it's, it's, it's a helpful thing for us sometimes to humble ourselves and to orientate ourselves that we're flying on a little ball around in, in the universe kind of thing. And 1.3 million of these fit into the sun. It's wild. But as you see here, the angels worship God for his holiness, his otherness. He's not worshipped for what he's done. He's worshipped for who he is. There are things that God has done. And he commands his people all throughout scripture to worship him and to remember him for what he's done. Because he acts out of his being. So he is always faithful to who he is. So he acts in accordance with his character. So it's okay to worship God for what he's done because he's always in, acting in line with who he is. But you see here, he's not, he's not worshipped for just what he's done. He's worshipped. If God never did anything, he would still be worthy of all of our worship. Because his very nature, his very being is other. It all starts and it's sustained by this. This is massively, massively important for our own journey with God and our own worship and, and for our very lives to get a clear picture of God, His otherness and His holiness. Isaiah sees this and his reaction is spot on. His, his reaction is exactly what you would expect. What does he say? Woe is me. Woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. If you read earlier in Isaiah, and this is very, this is very important, the previous chapters are basically a litany of woe to, woe to, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He's the prophet of God. He's pronouncing just woes on every other uh, nation and group and people, a subset of people. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. You've lost your way. Disaster and ruin is coming on you. You have forsaken the Lord. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He sees the Lord and what happens? Woe to me. 
woe to me. Some Christians, you'll find, they love the woe to you stuff. Yeah, the world's going sideways. Yeah, quickly, yeah, it's only the Christians. We're the last people. Woe to them, woe to them. The Lord's going to sort them all out. Finger pointing, woe to you. You know what you need? You need a woe to me moment. You need a woe to me. You need to be undone by seeing the, the holiness and the nature of God. He sees the king and suddenly it becomes personal. Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I li- I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Every time I read this passage, I remember Dan again. This is now a few years ago, just before he had high school when Dan still had a dummy. Um, no, I'm just kidding. It was longer than that. Dan was always a very resourceful uh, kid. And the one time he came running to me, he had mastered the art of being able to talk while he still had a dummy in his mouth. I don't know how kids actually do that. Um, and he came to me and he said, Dad, Dad, um, I, 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 I fixed it. I was like, what happened? He says, now, I dropped my dummy, but I cleaned it. I dropped my dummy, but I cleaned it. I was like, well, th- I mean, he was little, eh? And I was like, this is amazing. Like, this, I guess showing independence, initiative. Like, I don't have to do this. Because if, if you're not a parent, like, sift dirty dummies is not a good thing. Kind of thing. You do want your dummy clean. Some people are paranoid. They'll like, burn a dummy if it drops on the floor. Uh, we were never that kind of thing. But he comes very chuffed to himself that he's cleaned He's cleaned his dummy. And I said to him, my boy, like, uh, where, did, where, where did you drop it? Where did you clean it? He says, come, come, I'll show you. So, you know, obediently I get up and I follow him. And he leads me down the passage. Yeah, you can tell where this is going, I think, already. And into the bathroom. And I'm like, hmm, he's still too short to reach, to reach the basin. Walk straight past the basin. Looks into the loo, the not clean loo. And he says, in there, you know, <laughs> he had resourcefully decided that he had dropped his dummy somewhere and he'd clean it in the unclean um, toilet bowl and popped it straight back in his mouth kind of thing, you know, and like so chuffed with himself, you know, when I was putting him to bed that night, you know, he's like, yeah, good night, dad. I was like, good night. Uh. <laughs> Bluetooth kissing him on the head there. I was like, oh, I'm not going near those lips for a long time. <laughs> I'm still a bit averse to kissing him. Um, when I think of unclean lips, I, that is burned on my memory, like Dan, Dan, the man of unclean lips. Now, uh, Isaiah says, I, I am a man of unclean lips. This has become personal for me. Yes, I live amongst the a people of unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And they've all got the woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. But now I've seen the king. I've seen the king and it's woe to me. It's woe to me. I have a problem. What am I, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? It's not everybody else who's fallen short. It's not everybody else who's unclean in their lips. It's not everybody else who has a problem. I have a problem. I am Isaiah and I have a problem. I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king. He knew enough. He was the prophet of God. He says, no one can see the Lord and live. No one can see the Lord and live. He cries out, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And then what happens? What happens to Isaiah? This is a wonderful picture of the gospel. Isaiah experiences the grace of God. 
it says that one of the seraphim takes a coal from the altar, picks it up with tongs and puts it in his hand and then flies over to Isaiah and places the coal on his lips and says, from verse 6, let's just read it again. The one of the seraphim flew to me and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. I want you to notice here that Isaiah doesn't run to the altar, grab a coal for himself, and apply it to his own lips. He can't solve his own problem. He needs an angel. He needs the intervention of God to grab a coal from the altar that, you know, was for sacrifice and stuff. It's a picture of what is coming forward in Jesus and flies over to Isaiah in this state of woe to me. And touches his lips and declares this over him. Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah experiences grace in the midst of his woe to me. I am undone. What am I going to do? My eyes have seen the king. Psalm 103 verse 10 says this. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. Isaiah 43, verse 25, later on Isaiah says this, I, this is God speaking, I am the one, I am the one. I sweep away your transgressions for what? For my own sake and remember your sins no more. We deal with this again and again. For those of you who've been a Christian or you've been a Parkist, some of this may not be new to you. And I pray that it washes over your life with new force again this morning. That if you're a believer in Jesus, this is what has happened. That in Jesus, as it were, the picture here, God has taken that coal and come into your life and touched your lips and your sin is atoned for, your guilt is taken away. God has not treated you as your sins deserve. He hasn't. He hasn't treated you and repaid you according to your iniquities. He has swept away your transgressions, not for your sake. This is amazing, isn't it? Sometimes we think God saved us for us. He says he saved us for his own sake. And he will remember your sins no more. You can disciple new Christians. It's very important to help them with it. Sometimes your memory is quite short. You remember your old life. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time, you know, and it hasn't all been Stella. You know, some of you, no, not Stella, Carter, like Stella with an R on the end, sorry. Uh, it hasn't been outstanding. Some of you have had a terrible week. Some of you are sitting here this morning. Uh, I understand this not because I know, I know um, particular instances, but I just know what people are like. You feel weighed down with guilt and regret, both over things that you've done and things that you've left undone. What are you going to do with your guilt again? What will you do with your sin? You have to answer that question. Will you atone for it yourself again this morning by being at church, by being a good person, by singing louder, by paying attention through the sermon, by giving God more money? Or will you lean again on the one who flies over to you and touches your lips with the coal and says, your sin is taken away, your guilt is atoned for because there was another one who died on a cross in your place for your sin and he has removed your sin from you and he doesn't remember it anymore he has swept it away, not for you, but for his sake. That is the banner of truth that flies over the life of those who are Christians. 
if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, that is not true for you yet. It's not true for you yet. It can be true for you, but you first have to place faith in Jesus. Otherwise, you are left to atone for your own guilt. You are incapable of going and grabbing that coal and applying it to your lips. You can't solve your guilt problem. You can't solve your sin problem on your own. You need somebody to do it for you. And that is the glory of what Jesus has done for us. This is the foundation to following Jesus, is seeing God in the light of who he is and ourselves in the light of that and receiving grace from him. And then living lives in response to that, say, God, anything. What do you want of my life? Anything. I don't deserve I don't even deserve my next breath. But in your kindness, look what you've given me. Look what you've saved me from. Look what you've saved me to. Now Isaiah finds himself in a great position for an excellent question from God. He's seen the Lord terrified in the holiness of this vision of the Lord on his throne. He's been humbled. The prophet's been humbled by the holy God. Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. Now he's ready for a question, a hard message. Here's the question, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? The Trinitarian God asking Isaiah, who's going to go? Who's going to go? Who's going to go for us? It's a bit of a rhetorical question because there's no one else there. Isaiah's not like, um, because sometimes that can happen. There's a couple things that can happen. In terms of how Isaiah can respond, Isaiah can say, you know what, I'm just loving this. This is amazing. Can we have more of this, just this worship? Lord, can I just stay here with you? You know, in the temple here, listen to the worship, experiencing grace. My sin is atoned for, amazing. I don't want to go anywhere. I'm not doing anything. I don't have to speak on your behalf. I don't want to go out and do. You're going to see in a second what God asks him to go and do. And there is a very real temptation for Christians to huddle together and to find the safety in numbers and just want to be in worship services and church things and around Christians and say, this is fine. The world hates us. Let's just circle the wagons and just be all together now because we're going to be all together in eternity and the world can just be left on its own. It's not a possibility. It's not What God wants for us, what God wants for us is to encounter the glory and the majesty of who he is in his presence and then answer this question, who will go for? I say, who who can I send? And to answer like Isaiah does. He doesn't answer this, here am I, send someone else. Here I am, Lord, I've got someone in mind. Oh, they'll be perfect for you. I know exactly who can get the mission done. And sometimes we're like that as Christians. You can think of somebody else who's like, oh, man, they're just amazing as a Christian. They just got it all together. God's given them so many gifts, whatever else. I mentioned this a little bit last week on the priesthood of all believers. This is a really big deal. This is a really big deal. If you're a believer in Jesus, he has brought you into his family, and he has given you gifts. Not all of our gifts are the same, but he's given you gifts and abilities that are unique to who you are that need to play out in order for the whole body to be strengthened and for God to be glorified through what he wants to do in and through your life. When he asks you the question, who's going to go for us? 
your answer needs to be not, hey, God, I know somebody. I know somebody who can get this. It needs to be, here I am, send me. Your weaknesses don't disqualify you from being used by God. Some of you, your weaknesses are just in front of you. If I got you up here, you'd be like, tell me everything that you get wrong and the reasons why God couldn't use you uh, in significant ways. And you give me a super long list. If I gave you, give me a list of the, 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 the areas that God could use. It'd be a very short list. Paul goes hard after this. In the New Testament, he says, I, I boast all the more in my weaknesses so that God's power me may be displayed through my weakness. You, you, you don't, you're not the full package. You're not even half the package. Most of us, all of us, are decidedly average. If you've never been, haven't been around Parkers for a while, you, this is news to you, you know, and you never heard anyone maybe speak to you like this. I always mention I've got a side hustle as a motivational speaker. I haven't had any bookings yet. I'm, I'm astounded. But you're average. You are average. In the light of who God is, you're particularly average. And you know what? Paul says it's fine. Because God does his best work. He does his best work through weakness. You know how he describes you in the Bible? As a cracked jaw. As a cracked jaw. Not even a lack of smooth jaw, a cracked jaw. But that jaw gets filled with what? Gets filled with the Holy Spirit. So that whenever anything happens in your life that is God honoring or God glorifying or moves the mission forward, you know without a doubt it's not you. You're a cracked jar. What did you bring to the party? Yeah, the Spirit of God got a hold of your life and used you. The praise and the glory and the honor goes to Him. It doesn't go to you. And I'm not just talking about church stuff. I'm talking about your whole life. Your weaknesses don't disqualify you. Your weaknesses make you perfectly fit and able to be used by God. Your weaknesses are not an excuse. It doesn't get you, give you a, um, a free pass to tap out. our neighbor. The Lord bless you, bro. The only appropriate response to Jesus is, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. And you know what is amazing that Isaiah says, here am I, send me? He does it before he even gets clear on what God's asking him to do. Isn't that wild? Here am I, send me. I'm not sure what I'm signing up for. He doesn't care. He doesn't care what God's asking him to do. He sees God. He understands and experiences grace. And he's like, whatever you ask me to do, I'm up for it. Whatever you want me to do, I'm, I'm up for it. I'll go. And then you read further on in Isaiah. You just keep reading from verse 7 onwards. What does the God call Isaiah to do? He says, I'm going to send you to these people. And you're going to tell them this and this and this and this. And they're not going to listen to you. They're going to be a rebellious people. They're not going to listen to you. Their hearts aren't going to turn. You're going to see zero fruit in your ministry and in your life. Nothing. Nothing. The ultimate outcome of your ministry will be that the kingdom will divide and will fall. These, there's going to be no massive revival. There's going to be no massive national turning back to the Lord. There's not going to be stories that you get to tell in your old age. Oh, Messiah. Oh, old weathered. Wow, the Lord is so faithful. Look what he did. No, the Lord sends Isaiah to speak and to speak and to speak, and no one listens to him. And you know what? He did it. He did it all the way to the end. He was God's faithful prophet because what sustained him, what sustained him to continue to do what God asked him to do 
and preach a really hard message amongst the hard-hearted people. He had seen the Lord. He had seen the Lord, and he had experienced the grace of the Lord. And it wrecked Isaiah for anything less than ultimate and full obedience. I'm going to say this as well, that delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. I know this is not for everyone here this morning. I know it's not for everyone. But we are, as a people, too addicted to the appearance of success. If I could guarantee you this morning that um, something that God called you to would end really successfully, but it was really going to be tough. It's really going to be tough. I was asking you to, you know, saying, hey, I feel like the Lord's calling you to go and, I don't know, church plant in some really hard place or something else. You're like, wow, that's, that 's on super tough. I, said, I, pr- I promise you that 20 years in, you're going to see the most amazing things happen. There's going to be tons and tons of fruit, lots of Christians. It's going to be amazing. They're going to write books about you, tell your story everywhere. Some of you might be keen. Some of you might be like, yeah, still not keen. But some of you might be, yeah, absolutely, I'm up for that. I'm up for that. We're too addicted to the appearance of success. God has never called us and will never call us to fruitfulness. He calls us to faithfulness. He calls you to be faithful in whatever he's called you to do. He's called you to be faithful as a husband, as a wife, as a mom, as a dad, as a friend, as a faithful follower of Jesus, as an employee, just to be faithful in what he's asked you to do. He takes care of all the fruitfulness. It's all about him. It's not about you. some, some people, God uses in the biggest scheme of the advancement of his kingdom in absolute obscurity. And he buries them, as it were, as seeds in the ground. And future generations hide in the shade of those trees. And as I was preparing this again this week, I felt overwhelmed in praying for I said this is not for everyone this morning, that God would lay his hand on some of the people who are part of our church. They would be willing to bury their lives as seed in the ground so that future generations would share in that shade, that you would embrace a life of obscurity for the glory of Jesus, to go to the hardest places of the world, maybe, the hardest places of our country, into the hardest situations. You don't even have to leave your home, into the hardest relationships, in obscurity, no fame, no books written about you, no applause, just the eyes of the King of Heaven watching you. That's all the applause you need. That's all the affirmation you need. And that He would use your life in ways that you may never know the full effect of. If we remain addicted to the appearance of success, most of us are just going to rush towards very comfortable, lame, suburban living. And you're going to wonder why you come to church week after week and it just feels a bit, meh. Because you were never made for that. You weren't made to come and just sing average songs, listen to average sermons, have an average cup of coffee, have some small talk and go home and get on with your life and rush for comfort and accumulate things and live for yourself. You weren't made for that. You weren't. You were made for something 
far more. And you were called by someone far greater than you, for something far bigger than you ever dreamed possible. And my prayer, I don't know what it is for everyone. My prayer is that you would grab hold of that, not because I'm giving it to you, but because the Lord calls you to that. And you will put your hand up as individuals, as couples, and say, yeah, I'm up. Who will go for us? Who will go? You only get one answer. Here I am, Lord. Send me. My, my question to you is not, it's not will. It's not will you get involved in Jesus' very clear command to make disciples of the nations of the world. My question to you this morning is how? How will you get involved? Not will, how? We're not given that option of will you. We're given the option of how will you. Some of you are going to give money to enable people to go. Some of you are going to pray with such fire and effectiveness that it sustains the people who've gone, and some of you are going to go. And you're going to go across the street. Some of you are just going to go across the street, and some of you are going to go across the world. We're all going to play some role, but you have to figure out what role has God called you to play in his desire to reach and disciple the nations of the world, because that is what he is all about. Let me close with this quote from David Livingston. Some of you will know David Livingston, the famous um, African missionary. He said this, if a commission by an earthly king is thought an honor, how can a commission from a heavenly king be thought a sacrifice? Let me say that again. If a commission by an earthly king is thought an honor, how can a commission from a heavenly king be thought a sacrifice? You're not giving up anything. It's not woe to you, oh poor me, I'm following Jesus in wholehearted obedience, missing out on all these things. Ah, I wish I was like those guys. No, no, no. Following God in wholehearted obedience is the highest privilege and the greatest thing that you can give your life to. I don't know how it's going to play out in every individual's life. That's up for you to discern together with the Lord and with wise counsel around you. But I don't think it's up for debate. And my prayer that is you are provoked to see the one who calls you on his throne, calling you to himself again this morning. Let's pray together. Father, the longing of our hearts this morning is, is to see you um, as you are. To see, to see as much of you as we're able to withstand and comprehend in our humanness. We don't want to just be a people who go through the motions. We gather with average expectations pray that you would stir in us and provoke in us a longing for awe, a longing for wonder in the presence of the, of the Father who loves us. That the deepest longings of our hearts would be to you know, be caught up with you, to, to waste time as it were in your presence, declaring the praise and the glory and the honor and the majesty of your name, just affirming that you are the holy God. There's no one like you. 
There's no one who has a name like you do. There's no one who has the character like you. You're so entirely different to us. It's not that just that you're big, but you're different. You're completely other. And we worship you. We humble ourselves again this morning in your presence. And we worship you. You worship just, just for who you are. And yet you have done so much for us. You've taken away our guilt. You've atoned for our sin. You have made us yours. You have called us to yourself. You have called us son. You have called us daughter. You have removed our iniquity. You don't treat us as our sins deserve. And you call us again this morning. And I pray for us as you call us, as you ask us that question again that you asked Isaiah all those years ago, ago, who will go for us and who will we send? That you would see in our hearts a willingness to go, to lay down our lives in fresh commission for your purposes, wherever they play out, Father. You, you know your purposes for each one of us. Pray that you would give us a, a renewed vision of you and a renewed sense of what a privilege it is to be known by you, to be loved by you, and to love you in return, and to be able to give our lives. In, in service to you as an offering, as a gift for our good and for your glory and so that many others may come to know and enjoy what we have experienced in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray particularly this morning for those for whom this feels like a particular message for them, this particular calling to commit their lives to serving you in, in hard, in difficult places, maybe without even the clarity of what the call looks like. Pray that you'd give them grace to follow you in full obedience, regardless of the outcome. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that you haven't called us and you don't demand fruitfulness in us. You just call us to faithful following. And I pray for those that you're calling, that you'd give them grace to seal that in their lives and their hearts this morning. And they would see the outcome of that in the weeks, months, years and decades to come, how you use them, how you plant them, how you plant them as a display of your glory and the splendor of your majesty in future generations. We need your help this morning. We need you to speak. We need you to clarify. We need you to cement things in our hearts this morning and we need our eyes open to be able to see you. And so we look to you for your help again.